0: Wrapping up, uh, concluding this series called Running with the Giants. Running with the Giants. We've really enjoyed this series and we hope that you'll come back uh, next weekend as we launch Easter. Uh, we're doing our five uh, regularly scheduled Easter services and then we are doing uh, adding one on Friday night at seven o'clock and we're so excited about it. We conclude Running with the Giants today but next week Pastor Kelly's going to launch a new series called Seeing Jesus. You won't want to miss it. Uh, it's going to be so great. Uh, But meanwhile, we have been in studying these heroes of the faith or giants of the faith. And this is the key verse of this series. And this whole idea comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And I put it in a different translation today, just so it could kind of hit us in a fresh way this morning. And it says, Since we have such a huge crowd of faith watching us from the grandstands, let us strip off anything that slows us down or holds us back, And especially those sins that wrap themselves so tightly around our feet and trip us up. And let us run with patience the particular race that God has set before us. So we're studying these great leaders who have gone before us. And the Bible continually um, refers to our life as being a race. And so we're running our race in our generation, in our lane, in our time. And what would it be like if these amazing heroes of the faith who are witnesses to what God has done, jumped out of the grandstands and ran a lap with us? What would they say? How would they coach us up? What would they tell us to do? And today we're going to be encouraged by Esther. Esther. I believe that if Esther were to come run a lap with us, Just right up front, this is what she would say. She'd say, when you're surrounded by chaos, remember God is in control. When you're surrounded by chaos, remember God is in control. This message is for the person who says either God does not care, or God doesn't have the power to do what he wants to do, and he's lost control. And if Esther were to jump out of the stand, she'd say, I couldn't see it either, but I'm here to tell you, I'm a witness to it. God is in control. And and she would say, if God were to drop the curtain on everything that he's doing in the world for his glory and for his kingdom, it would blow your mind. She'd say, if God were to pop the hood on this whole thing and you were to see what he's up to, you would go, oh my goodness, God is in control. And things may seem chaotic, but God has not lost a step. He's not grown tired or weary, and he hasn't lost control. And things may seem chaotic, but the Bible says, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Let's read that again out loud together. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. And you may not be able to say that out of your mouth with much conviction right now. But my hope is that in about 30 minutes, you're going to be able to say that with a lot of conviction and say yes. And you could put whatever you want to before that verse. Whatever's going on in your life. You say, things are so chaotic in my life, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. You might say, the news is crazy right now. It's just chaos, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. You might say, there's so much change happening in my life right now, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. If you want a theological term for what this is, it's called the doctrine of divine providence. Divine providence. And the doctrine of divine providence means that God directs all things. God is in complete control of all things. He's sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human success and failures, and the protection of his people. And it stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by fate or by chance, or that God just set it all in motion and has totally disappeared. And Esther, if she were to come out of the stands, She would stand in direct opposition to the world around us. And she would say, you, my friend, are not an accident. And where God put you is not an accident. When you live, it's not an accident. The idea that you are a church today in this service is not an accident. Because the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, his purposes of his heart through all generations. There's never been a generation where God has not been working his purpose, and if that can be true in Esther's generation, it can certainly be true today. I'll show you what I mean. I want to give you a little bit of background to the history. Of one of the, um, the, the last books written in the Old Testament. It was written about two and a half thousand years ago. The book of Esther isn't very long. You could read it in about 30 minutes. And I'd encourage you to do that today. It is one of the most compelling reads in the Bible, in my opinion. And it begins with introducing this king, King Xerxes. King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes was a Persian king, and he towers in human history, and he in every way towers over the story and the life of Esther. In studying King Xerxes, I discovered there's really never been a generation that didn't have him in some type of modern art or culture. Okay, there are whole video games today dedicated to King Xerxes and the Persian empire. King Xerxes towers in human history, and at this point, he's in his mid-30s. It's in the third year of his reign, and he assumed the throne at about age 32. And when Esther enters the scene, she's 15 to 20 years younger than he is. He is a man who grew up very wealthy, very affluent, and we actually know quite a bit about him from the historian Herodotus. Now, Herodotus didn't write the book of Esther. It's a completely different time. So what people would do in that day is whoever won the war... Whatever team won, they would hire the historian to write the history. (laughs) And so it wasn't history, it was PR. But Herodotus was from Greece, and his nickname is the father of history. And he just wrote tons of history. And his goal was to try to get a neutral viewpoint. And he would just interview eyewitnesses and try and get both sides and just try to present history. And so we learn a lot about Xerxes from him. Because his work centers around the Persian Empire because it had a conflict with Greece. And Xerxes was known as Xerxes the Great. And the big idea is he's the most powerful man on the earth. His father, Darius, was a legendary king. He ruled about 36 years. And we know him from other books in the Bible, such as Daniel. He was a man who expanded his empire by taking over, conquering, and assimilating multiple nations. So they are a kingdom that spans multiple nations and peoples. They have different values, different ethnicities, different languages, different religious convictions. And it says that they live at this point in Susa. If you want a modern day place for that, that's in Iran. And the Israelites who were in Susa were in exile. They'd been taken from their homeland, taken out of their homeland. And the Israelites that are in Susa in this capital city have not gone back to their homeland yet. And the question arises, is God working in other nations in other places beyond Jerusalem? Is he working beyond the temple? Is he working beyond just God's people? Is God at work in nations beyond, even pagan godless nations like this Persian kingdom? And the story of Esther reveals that yes, absolutely, he is. So this man Darius was this great king and when I say that I don't mean he was a good king I just mean that I mean he just had so much and built his empire so much he had multiple wives multiple children a huge harem and it showed it was supposed to show the greatness of his kingdom and he gave it all to his son Xerxes who's just this narcissistic spoiled rich kid who never worked a day in his life never went to war never battled never labored in fact he probably never even met his father as custom was until he was five years old. Because what they would do is the kings would impregnate the women and then the women would go to their chambers, their places, and then raise the kids and then at five years old present them to their fathers. So he grew up in this totally dysfunctional environment and grew up a very spoiled boy. He lacked nothing and he was given a kingdom that basically went from Sudan all the way up to Pakistan all the way over to Greece. I'll show it to you on a map. So everything in the red line is under the rule of King Xerxes. And everything within the red line is also known as the world. Okay, there isn't a bunch of people in Kansas City yet. All right, they're not packing out houses in Brazil yet. Most of the people in, in the world are living within that red line. And King Xerxes is king over all of it. So imagine today one ruler, one political spiritual leader rising up with such power that they can turn Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan into one nation under their rule. Even today, that would be amazing. To get two of those nations to agree on anything would be amazing. (laughs) And so you know a king is powerful when he can turn enemies into allies and under the rule of one kingdom. It's hard to overstate who this man Xerxes was, and and I'm doing this to try to get a picture to you of of the fear that Esther and her family would have had under his reign, And, and the chaos that they were living under, the dysfunction that they were living under. How did King Xerxes um, enforce his will? Well, he was nothing short of a god in the minds of the eyes of those who were under his rule and reign. There's never been a point in history of a a kingdom this large. How did he enforce his will? Well, they actually created the first postal system, and he would give decrees, and it was like a word from God, and it was believed that he was this god-man, and he called himself the king of kings. Sound familiar? And it was believed that he spoke with the voice of the sun and they would take the decree and King Xerxes would, would seal it and it would go through the empire, through the, through the postal system. And the postal system had this particular motto. I'm not joking. Let me, I'm going to read it and you'll see if you recognize it. Neither snow nor rain nor gloom of night stays these valiant couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. We stole that from King Xerxes. <laughs> He was also well protected. You ever heard of the immortals? They were 10,000 trained fighters that would travel with him and be with him wherever he was. So his security staff fills a small stadium. You might wonder, how does he maintain rule over his kingdom? Well, this is where the book of Esther really gets going because it starts describing this party. This party where King Xerxes has brought in all the governors, all the rulers, all the generals, all the people from all this nation, because how are you going to keep all these different people in line and under your rule? Well, you throw a party and you give them the best food, you give them the best drink, the most beautiful harem, you give them lavish gifts, gold and silver, and they will do anything because you care for them. These are tax dollars at work. This was a party to end all parties. The commentators say just military generals and leaders and rulers, 15,000 people. I mean, if you're in hospitality, just think about that party for 15,000 people. And how long do you think it lasts? 180 days. Six months. So six months, the 15,000 political and military leaders have an enormous party, And then there's food and drink left over. And he says, you know what? We really need to open this up to all the regular folk. So he extends the party one week and opens it up to all the people in the palace city and says, come in. And he gives an edict. It's an open bar and you need to finish all this up. And so they just have a week of drunkenness. And he calls for his wife because he's thinking, okay, how are we going to cap off this party? What is going to be the grand finale? So he calls for his wife, Vashti, to come because he wants to see everyone to see how beautiful she is. And he calls for her to come in her crown. And most suggest that he was asking for her to come in the crown and only the crown. And then something happens to Xerxes that hasn't happened in his life yet, most likely. She says no. She says, no, I'm not going to do that. And his advisors start thinking about that, and they realize that if Xerxes' wife says no to him, there might be women and wives all over our palace that start saying no to their husbands. (laughs) That can't do. So they talk to Xerxes about it, and Xerxes says, okay, I've got to out my wife. I've got to make an example of her. And so he outs his wife, Queen Vashti, And now he's looking for a new wife. Esther 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew who lived in the palace complex in Susa. His name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. His ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles and carried off with King Jehoiakim of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon into exile. Mordecai has reared his cousin Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, Since she had no father or mother, the girl had a good figure and a beautiful face, and her parents, after her parents died, Mordecai had adopted her. So all the Jews have been moved out of their home country. Here's Esther following her country and her people. They've been um, living in exile, living in a country not their own living with a cousin because her parents passed on. She's been adopted. She's completely out of place. She's surrounded by chaos. But in the middle of the chaos is some divine providence. In the middle of chaos, we see God is in control. And the first thing we learn from Esther is that believing God is in control requires great faith and trust. What's really fascinating about the book of Esther is that there is not one reference to God. Not one mention of God. God never appears. God never speaks. No prophet speaks on behalf of God. No angel shows up. The heavens don't open up and God delivers a word personally. There are no miracles. There's nothing supernatural. There's no mention of Jerusalem and the temple and the presence of God. There's no mention of the priesthood and the sacrificial system of sin. There's no quoting of other books in the Bible. There's no giving of God's laws. No one repents. No one prays. Says they fast. Doesn't say they pray. There's no action from God or to God that's revealed anywhere in the entirety of the book of Esther. Now, looking back and having all of scripture, we kind of knew something like this was coming. Because right before Moses died, God told Moses, as he put it, I will surely hide my face from them. He says, they're going to end up in a place where they shouldn't be. And they're going to sin against me. And I'm going to hide my face from them. But it's evident in this book, undeniable, God is working in the shadows. And God is at work and there's divine providence. And faith is when I don't see God, the heavens didn't open up, no angel came, no prophet came. No word confirmed the the thing that I'm stepping out on faith. But I trust that God knows what he's doing and I believe he is in control. You see there's always going to be an element of uncertainty in our lives. It will be that way until we stand next to Jesus and his face is no longer hidden. I wish it weren't that way. I wish it all just worked out. I wish in every moment, I wish that everything that you believed God for and every time you stepped out in faith was confirmed by some supernatural vision or event that could help you in your faith so you wouldn't have to doubt. But it doesn't really work that way. There isn't clarity in every moment. But I'm going to show you at the end of the message today that that's actually a benefit. And believe it or not, you're going to leave here today praising God that you didn't get a sign. You're going to say, thank you, God. Thank you. I'll show it to you later. But here's King Xerxes. And he's looking for a new wife. And so how does King Xerxes decide he's going to find his new wife? Like you do, you hold a beauty pageant. And you just pick the one you want. So Esther gets caught up in this contest. And it says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other woman. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set out a crown, royal crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther gets caught up in this competition that she didn't really want to be in, and she gets put in a position that she really didn't want to be in. And some of you would say, oh my goodness, that's like a reflection of my life. I got caught up in all this stuff I didn't want to be caught up in. I didn't want to be involved in that drama. I didn't want to be part of this, this thing. I never even, this was never my desire to be part of all this junk that's going on. And she would say, yeah, but, but you've got to have faith and you've got to trust. And, and she would say, looking back over my life and running this lap with you and looking at your life, you've got to have faith and trust in God that he'll use it for good. Don't stop believing God is in control. Have faith, have trust. Number two, believing God is in control requires great courage. There's going to be a moment when belief is going to cause us to move against our fear. There's going to be a point where our faith in God's sovereignty is put to the test, and we've got to have some courage. And maybe Esther's courage was instilled in her from her adopted dad. I think that's where she got it. Because after Esther is put into the palace, Xerxes elevates this man. Don't check out on me now. we're introducing a new character. And this man's name is Haman. And Haman is elevated to the highest position. And so, because Haman is so elevated in this kingdom, he's expecting people to give him the reverence and the fear and, and bow to him and tremble just like they would King Xerxes. And people start doing it, but Mordecai won't do it. Mordecai won't do it. And, and they, he refuses, but day after day, they confront him and, and he refuses. He refuses. And Haman just gets enraged that everyone else is bowing and trembling except for this one man. And he gets so enraged that it's not enough to kill Mordecai. He finds out Mordecai's a Jew and decides we're killing all the Jews. So he goes to King Xerxes and he says, Did you realize that there's a whole race of people under your reign that follow a different God? They don't believe your God. And they follow different laws than you decree. Is that really in your best interest? And Xerxes complies. And he issues a decree that all the Jews must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated in a single day. And then it says, while the king and, and, and Haman, that they, after this decree was made, they sat down and had a drink. Meanwhile, Susa falls into chaos and confusion. And Esther and Mordecai are surrounded by chaos and confusion. So Mordecai sends a message to Esther and tells her, you've got to go before the king and beg for mercy. But Esther knows what happened to the last queen who went against Xerxes' will. And she says, are you kidding me? You don't. Everyone knows that you can't go in front of the king unless you're invited. And I haven't been invited for 30 days. Check out what Mordecai says in reply. He says, "...do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish." And who knows, but you have come to royal position. Say this last line with me. For such a time as this. One of the most famous lines in the Bible. Mordecai is saying, I didn't see it at first either. But oh my goodness, this is why God put you there. This is why you're there you're going to be the one to make a difference. And and Esther, you've got to find some courage in this moment because God's in control and and he's put you here for this reason. Number three, believing God is in control requires great focus. Great focus on God. It means that, that you've got to get your focus off of yourself and onto God. If you look within yourself, you're going to say, Oh my goodness, God's not in control. If you look at the world around you, God is not in control. If you let God enter that picture frame, you're going to say, God is in control. You've got to get your focus off of yourself, off of the world, and onto God. Onto God. Esther said, It is impossible. But things may be impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. Esther 4, 15 through 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and my maids will fast as you do. Don't get so distracted with yourself and only with your needs that you forget God. So believing in God, believing God is in control requires faith and trust and courage and focus And number four may surprise you, but believing God is in control requires great initiative. You might say, okay, so if God is in control, what does my initiative have to do with anything? If God is in control, what does my decision have to do with anything? Well, as you grow as a believer, and as you grow as a disciple of Christ and a follower of Jesus, as you mature in the faith, you learn that you have to be able to hold two tensions in your mind at the same time. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus taught us. Jesus taught the sovereignty of God when he said, the son of man will go as it has been decreed. He taught the responsibility and the free will of man when he said things like, woe to the man who betrays. There's a balance in where I reap what I sow and there's cause and effect because the main way God is controlling what happens throughout existence is through the cause and effect existence that he created. The sowing and reaping he created. So believing in divine providence, believing God is in control, is, does in, in no way destroys your freedom and destroys your free will. Rather, divine providence takes our freedom into account, and in God's infinite wisdom, it sets the course to fulfill God's will. So we see it in this story. Esther doesn't just sit back and say, Mordecai, chill out. God's in control. Mordecai, why are you telling me what to do? God's in control. Mordecai, I'm not going to do this. God's in control. We don't have to do anything. He's, God's in control. No, she takes the initiative and she says, because God's in control, I'm going to stick my neck out there. Because God's in control, it frees me up to do the right thing. Because God is in control, it removes fear from the equation. And she says, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What in your life do you need to release control over to God? To realize he's in control and then just take the initiative to do the right thing. It may be confessing a sin. It may be doing the right thing at work. It may be revealing that you didn't do the right thing at work. And you say, if I lose my job, I lose my job. But God's in control. And I'm going to obey him. And I'm going to trust him with the consequences. What in your life do you... Maybe you're on a team... And the team is constantly doing things that you know is sin, things that you don't want to do, but you don't want to look like you're, like you're not a team player. You got to say, God is in control and it frees me up to do the right thing. And I'm not going to dishonor my God. I'm going to believe that he's in control. I'm going to obey God. I'll leave the consequences to him. That's what Esther did. That's what Esther did. That's the story of Esther. And I almost hate to sum up the ending and what happened because there's just some pretty amazing spoilers. And uh, I won't even tell you what happened to Haman. You've got to read it for yourself. I mean, it's just hilarious and tragic. And I mean, just amazing what happened to Haman. But Esther ends up taking the initiative and with courage and faith and focus, she goes to King Xerxes and reveals that it's her and her people that will be destroyed. And Xerxes is angry and he doesn't know what to do because he can't revoke the decree. You see, the people under his rule thought that his voice was inerrant, that when he spoke, it was inerrant. And so if he starts revoking decrees, he's revealing to them that his word is not inerrant. And he says, I'm sorry, I cannot revoke the decree. The annihilation is still set to happen on this day. And Esther says, well, then do this, issue another decree That on the same day, the Jews can fight against whoever's come against them. And it's absolutely thrilling as you read through the victory of God's people. And obviously, God was working. Obviously, God was working all things together for good. Esther would say, I couldn't see him. I didn't hear from him. And maybe you don't feel him now either. But God is in control. Each week of this series, we've, we've looked at some final words of encouragement, and I think Esther's final words of encouragement would just reinforce the things that she'd be saying. She's saying, I'm under a trial, and you're going to be under a trial too. And she says, when you're under a trial, when you're in the middle of a trial, stay steady. If you're going through a trial, way to be here today. Way to stay steady. Way to keep worshiping. Way to keep lifting your hands. Way to keep opening your mouth and singing praises to God. Way to keep serving. Way to stay steady. Don't give up now. Come on, you came all this way. You've run this race this far. Stay steady. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Don't forget who's in control. It's the God of Esther. It's the God of Elisha. It's the God of Rahab and Joseph and Jacob and Rebecca and Abraham and Noah. You know their stories. You can't give up now. If God can come through for them, he'll come, in, he'll come through for you. When you can't see God, Esther would say, remember the blessing. What blessing? Well... We so often think, and maybe you've heard this or said this, that if I could just have been alive when Jesus was alive and on the earth, if I could just have seen Jesus face to face, and if I could have seen the miracles, and if I could have heard the Sermon on the Mount, and if I could have seen him risen from the dead, It would just remove all this doubt and I would just be the most amazing follower and I wouldn't wrestle with my faith so much. The only problem with that is that all the people who saw Jesus face to face and saw the miracles and heard the Sermon on the Mount abandoned him and Jesus died almost totally alone and abandoned. Even when he came back from the dead and Thomas is looking at his face, Jesus has to convince Thomas it's him. And then Jesus said this, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's me. That's you. Stop thinking you're getting less because you don't see him in the flesh. Stop thinking you're getting less because the heavens didn't open up and an angel didn't visit you and you didn't get some supernatural sign to to confirm you're stepping out in faith and believing God. Your blessing is better. Jesus says you're more blessed because you're here today, you believe in him, you worship him as the king of kings and you haven't even seen him. He says it's better. How fortunate we are to be alive at such a time as this. That's what Esther would say. That's what Mordecai would say. Mordecai would say, I couldn't see him either. But don't you dare bow to another. Mordecai would say, don't do it. Don't you bow to anyone like Haman. Don't you bow to anything. Don't surrender to the chaos around you. Mordecai would say, I don't care what you see or don't see. Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he sits enthroned above, and he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. All glory and power is his. Don't do it. He'd say, I don't care what you hear, what you don't hear, that's the truth. Don't bow to another. Remember the blessing. I mean, how fortunate we are to be alive in this generation. Jesus says, you're more blessed. I've just been thinking about the final thought of this series and the final point of this series and, and what it would be, because the last point of the message today is the last point of this whole series, and how do you wrap up this amazing thing? And The whole idea has been that our life is a race and we're running our race. But what happens when you run a race is sometimes you stumble. So I think the final thought for this message in this series is that when you stumble in your race, reach out your hand. Because we're all going to hit points in our life where we just flat out blow it. And we just stumble. And we're going to think there's no coming back. But the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall. For the Lord holds them by the hand. I want to enclose this series with an encounter that Jesus had with one of his disciples. You may have heard of it. It's when Jesus walks on water. And the disciples are in a boat, and they're out, and there's a storm. There's chaos around them. And they see Jesus out walking on the water in the middle of this storm. And Peter decides to jump out of the boat and walk around with Jesus on the water. Here's what it says. It says, but when he saw the wind, when he saw the chaos around him, when he read that news report, when he saw what that family member did, when he got the news of what they told him about it, when they heard the rumor of the layoffs coming, when, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and pushed him under the water and held him there for a few seconds to teach him a lesson <laughs> that you never doubt God. Don't ever doubt me. Everyone in the boat, are you seeing this? Don't ever <laughs> doubt me again. Now he reached out his hand, and he was there, and he caught him. And he said, you have little faith, that was fun. It was working. It was working. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, first time they ever said it, truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. The point of this passage and of this story was never to demonstrate the strength or the weakness of Peter's faith. It was to demonstrate the strength of God's grace. The point of every story you've heard in this series, every person that we've looked at, was never to demonstrate the strength or the weakness of the person's faith. It was not a story about Joseph who did these amazing things. It was not about a story about how Noah saved the human race. It's not a story about Esther's beauty and courage. It's not a story about Peter who fell and sank. It's a story about Jesus who reached down and picked Peter up and was right there with an outstretched arm. It's a story about grace. Grace that is greater than any slip-up. It's grace that is greater than any screw-up. Greater than the divorce. Greater than the layoff. Greater than the addiction. Greater than the affair. Greater than the fear. Greater than the depression. Greater than the opinions of the people back in the boat. Don't let anyone discourage you or criticize you while you're running your race toward Jesus. Peter failed at what he set out to do. But Jesus succeeded to prove exactly what he wanted to prove. And the point was never to prove Peter's water-walking skills. The point was never to demonstrate Esther's beauty and courage. The point was to demonstrate that Jesus is the true son of God. And you may fail to set out to do what you wanted to do. But Jesus will prove exactly what he wanted to prove. Because his purpose stands through every generation. And maybe you today, it's time like the disciples to stop thinking about it and just saying it in your mind and actually open your mouth for the first time and say, truly you are the son of God. To get in the car and on the way home and actually open your mouth and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the outstretched arm. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for grace that is greater than any stumble I have made. Truly, you are in control. Truly, you are God. Heavenly Father, we believe it. Jesus is the Son of God, and His grace is greater. It's amazing. It's greater than any headline I'm going to read today. It's greater than any rumor I hear. It's greater than that thing that I did that has seemingly destroyed me. And God, when I stumble, I want to reach out for you. And I praise you that you are right there to catch me. Church, would you just slip your hand up in the air and reach out for God today and just embrace, embrace his grace, embrace that he is there to catch you. Come on, lift up your hand. Though we stumble and fall, his grace is greater. Though chaos surrounds us, come on, lift up your hand. The Lord is there, and his grace surrounds us. His grace is amazing. It's through Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.